Our Heavenly Father, you want to you ask that you would speak to us again this afternoon. Lord, whether we know you or we don't, whether it's our first time here at church or not, we just want to pray that um, you, would, you would show us who you are. You'd address us. You'd speak to us. Thank you that you are here and you're present in this building this afternoon by the, the power of your Holy Spirit. What do you want to say? We want to ask that we would see who you are and who we are in light of you. We pray that we would, as we look at 1 Corinthians 8, be a church that does truly love one another and that being an overflow of your love for us. So Lord, we want to ask that we would see your love clearly this afternoon. We'd be reminded of it afresh, that it would not simply be a concept that we study, but a real reality in our lives day by day. So Lord, use me as your servant. Help me to speak truth, your truth. And Lord, just please show us more of yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, I'm sure you've heard this before, but um, uh, uh, I want to look at this, these, these, uh, where you are, where you come in your sibling order affects uh, your personality. So, um, hand up here who's an eldest child. Got some in the room, got some eldest children, okay. Um, what about uh, middle child? Feel them, youngest, the greatest. Oh yeah, that's me. Youngest, youngest children, that's me as well. Uh, now, I was, uh, throughout this week, I was reading an article on the birth order, if I'm a birth order expert, as you, as you do, and um, explaining why your, uh, where you come in your birth order affects your personality um, uh, and behavior. So, if firstborn children, right, here's what generally they're like. Uh, reliable, conscientious, structured, cautious, controlling, and achievers. Uh, apparently, firstborn uh, follow their parents' lead pretty tight. Uh, when you know new parents have their first child, trying to do anything perfect, they gush over their firstborn, and uh, it means that it motivates the oldest ch- child to, to to achieve. And it's easy for the eldest children to become perfectionists. Uh, they see their adults you know doing everything right, and they just want to copy and mimic what their parents are doing, and so they want to be perfectionists. Middle children, uh, they are peacemakers. Uh, they are quick to compromise and, and, to, and to help out others in a good way, not, not a bad way. Uh, dif- diplomatic, uh, handle disappointment well, apparently. They're independent and tend to be the opposite of their older sibling. Uh, a few laughs there. They were like, no way, that's, that's not happening. <laughs> They're generalizations. Um, apparently, in the eyes of the middle children, uh, the older sibling reap all the privileges uh, the, the youngest children get away with everything, so the middle child has to sort of navigate their way through and negotiate life, apparently. <laughs> youngest children, that's what I am. Normally, fun-loving, uncomplicated, manipulative. Oh. <laughs> ah, sneaky. Be careful of me. Um, <laughs> outgoing, attention-seeking, and self-centered. Wow. That got negative really quickly, didn't it? Parents tend to let their oldest, the youngest child get away with everything. You know, like I think the parents are done with parenting. Third one, do what you want. You just go and sort it out yourself. Um, uh, but as a result, they, uh, the youngest one gets away with more than their siblings do. They shoulder less responsibility, tend to be carefree, easygoing, fun-loving, and they like to make people laugh, apparently. Now, generalizations, I know, and look at my siblings in my order. I'm the youngest, got an older brother, older sister. I can see elements of that, but it's not clear but I, I definitely see it when I look at my kids. Uh, you know, you have, I have my three kids. Um, uh, have Savvy, who's the youngest, or Savvy P, she likes to be known. Uh, the fun-loving one. Always up for a laugh, 24-7. Uh, she'll make up ha- songs about anything, happy to dance around naked, just for a good time. Just loves. <laughs> that's, what she, that's what she's in for. 
Uh, <laughs> Indy, the middle child, uh, is, uh, is uh, diplomatic, the peacemaker, she's gentle, she feels a lot, my sort of girl, I love that. And there's Jet, my oldest boy, I think my only boy, but the oldest, he's reliable, conscientious and structured, and he loves rules, he loves the black and white, he's the achiever of the family. Now, the trick comes when you try to, uh, when a parent, uh, these little beautiful children, and uh, how to shape their hearts as they grow up. And I think about my oldest boy, Jet, my only boy, and uh, he loves to know, he loves to understand, he loves to know uh, what is right and what is wrong. And he loves to learn and knowledge, because knowledge for him leads to um, knowing boundaries and what, what he should be doing. Uh, and being right is important for Jetty. Uh, so being eight and being the oldest and loving knowledge and knowing what is right and wrong, it's, what, it's interesting to watch him interact with Sav, the one who doesn't really care, has a party. And so, and so uh, she's just like, I'm trying to work the world out whilst having as much fun as I can at the same time. And uh, Jet will help Sav and tell her how to colour in and how to build Lego. There's a right way to build Lego and there's a wrong way to build Lego, apparently, according to Jetty sometimes. The rules of you know and not cheating and putting the right cards down at the right time. And then also, you know, correcting her on the lyrics of songs she sings when she gets them wrong, often. And it's funny uh, watching Sav because she doesn't really care. She just wants to have fun and often get naked. And... Um, and, but often my chat with Jet is, is, is like, buddy, you know, you, I know you know what is right and wrong, but you don't always have to correct others, and especially Sav, she's still trying to learn. You want to help her to learn without telling her that she's wrong. And as a dad, I love that Jet loves knowledge, and, he, and I love that he loves thinking, but I want him to use that knowledge to, to help people, to love people, to be gentle with people, and not be someone who uses it to lord it over people and for pride. That's what we're trying to shape him that way. And this is the exact issue happening here that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 8. Yeah, we just read it's about food and idols and sacrificing and temples and all that sort of stuff going on. But, but, but below the surface here, what Paul addresses is that the hard issue of pride and a lack of love within the church that's causing this disunity going on. And Paul knows that pride and arrogance is dangerous in the church. It can cause hierarchy and insecurity and people think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian and all that sort of stuff. So Paul wants to speak into that. In a community like this that, that, that uh, lacks love and humility and care is the opposite of what Jesus actually calls his church to be. The church is to be a representation, his almost physical representation on the earth. And Jesus says, that is not what I want. It needs to be full of humility and love. And Paul's going to speak into this in this chapter. As I briefly mentioned, we had David Bennett here last week. He was amazing, really blessed our church. And... Uh, what he really spoke about is that we, he, he encouraged us to be a community, a church, who welcomes people in no matter who, who they are, no matter what their sexuality is or what their background is. And he says how we do that as a church, as a community here, is that we do that by not being lukewarm. Not being lukewarm for Jesus, but rather going all in and showing anyone who comes in here that Jesus is worth giving your whole life up for. That's what he's encouraging us to do. And I think really, if we're going to be a community like that, which I heard, I spoke to a few of you, you're keen for that, which is really cool to hear, then we need to be a church who is Christ-like, who, who radically loves no matter who people are or, or what they're like, and a, a church that is humble, who puts the needs of others before our own, modeling and showing that Jesus is worth it. And that's a community that is not lukewarm. And that's what God is going to challenge us today with in uh, 1 Corinthians 8. Let me show you one continues that. We'll walk through it and we'll talk through it together. But, uh, but just, to, just to set the scene a little bit, 
Corinth, maybe uh, as you remember, Corinth was a real place um, that Paul is writing to with the church there. And uh, this city of Corinth had a number of temples and shrines to God. So it was very spiritual, very spiritual. And there was, a, there was a, a real temple culture within the city of Corinth. So this young church was very small, very young, in the minority. These Christians had to work out how do they be Christian in this culture of temples and other religions. How do they work this out? Uh, a lot of the church, before they became Christians, they would have gone out and celebrated at different festivals and temples and sacrificed and gone and uh, paid their respects to idols, all that sort of stuff. Now they've become Christian. They've got to try and work out, now, do I still do that? Do I not do that? Do I give that up? Can I engage in that in, in any capacity? And they're trying to work this all out. And so what Paul wants to address this issue uh, within the church. Have a look at sentences 1 to 3 that Jez read for us. It says this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we, all know, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if, you, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Paul's addressing this question around food and, and idols and worship and whether food should be eaten if it's been sacrificed to a god or an idol. The belief was if you sacrificed food to a god, then that god would come and, and, and be in the food, then you eat that food, and then you somehow ingest this god and you unite yourself with it. That's the idea that's going on here. This is why people are saying, what should we do? And it seems like in this church in Corinth, there was a split over, the, over this issue. There were two camps. <clears throat> the so-called more knowledgeable, more informed, more mature were saying, look, there's only one God. Uh, there's no other gods. Idols aren't real, so eat the food. The God's not in that food because there's no other God but God of the Bible, and he's not in that food, so you can eat it. It's fine to eat, not a big deal. But there were others in the church, and they, Paul calls them the weaker Christians, who are still trying to work out their faith a little bit. They'd spent their whole lives believing this, believing in idols and temples and sacrifice. And they haven't yet reached a certain maturity in their thinking. And they were sensing their consciences that, that they, I can't eat this meat. That's what I used to be like. I can't go and eat this food. It's been offered to an idol. That's like worshiping another guy and I'm a follower of Jesus now, so I can't do that. And there's this issue in this church saying, some are saying, do, eat, whatever. Others are saying, no way, I can't do that. Now, you could think this could be easily resolved by Paul coming and saying, look, idols are nothing, there's one true God, eat what you want. And he does that a little later on in verses uh, 4 to 6. But before he gets there, he wants to address this issue in the church that is causing this tension. He wants to go there first. Most likely those who were eating the meat that were sacrificed to idols were maybe boasting about how mature they were um, and, and had they had more knowledge than these weaker Christians and they should listen to them. And these knowledgeable ones uh, were eating this food sacrificed to idols. The weaker ones weren't really comfortable with that. And they, but when they saw the more mature ones eating, they were, they were thinking, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. And they'd go and eat, and then they'd go against their conscience and, uh, and, 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 and do what they thought they shouldn't do. So Paul wants to address these knowledgeable members of the church because they're thinking, the weaker, uh, are thinking, not really thinking about the weaker ones in the church and to look after them. And so Paul addresses them. And he comes in down uh, and he says to them, you have a lack of love and care and humility and consideration for, for where they're at, for how they're struggling with this issue. And he even says this issue uh, is causing pride in them. Paul says here, their knowledge puffs them up, as it says there. 
these so-called, the so-called knowledgeable ones are maybe looking down on these, these, uh, these less mature ones in the church who are refusing to eat the food. And Paul contrasts this knowledge they have that says that leads to their pride, they're puffing them up. And he says, rather than doing that, you should be loving them and building them up and encourage them uh, to work this out, walking beside them. He says, if anyone has knowledge but it leads to pride and looking down on others, then Paul says, uh, they do not know as they ought. But if someone loves, then he is known by God. If you know, um, if you know anything about the church, uh, God uh, gifts in the church, gives gifts to the church to use for the, for the good of the body. Um, we're all gifted. And one of the gifts that I have is I have the gift of getting free stuff. It's a real gift that I enjoy. And it happened the other day. I was, I was at home and I'd ordered some, um, I'd ordered some stuff in my backyard called road basic sort of gravel stuff. And I was waiting for it to come. And the truck driver was coming and he called me and said, oh, I've got your delivery coming. I'm like, oh, great. And he said, oh, by the way, uh, we question for you. I'm like, yeah. And he said, um, I've got um, two ton of mulch, fresh mulch in the back of my truck. And I need to get rid of it. Would you do me a favor and take it for free? Sure can. Thanks very much. My gift strikes again. Um, it was great. So I've got two ton of mulch sitting in my front yard. My kids just run over like a, like a little mountain to run on now. It's great. Uh, one of the other gifts that I have is uh, I have the gift of receiving advice. Um, I've mentioned this before, but for some reason, and maybe because in some way I look like I need help, but um, I don't know, but I have a lot of people who love to tell me what I should be doing, and, uh, and, and without even asking for it. It's a real gift that I have. Um, people I haven't seen for a while or don't really know that well or um, don't really know what's going on for me, they'll come and say, now, Gav, here's what you need to do, and they'll give me this monologue of what I need to do. And then after they've given it, they feel great, they move on. I'm like, okay, great. Don't want to listen to that. Anyway. And I don't know about you, but when someone does that to me, when someone just drops this massive advice on me without listening or understanding me, I don't really feel super loved by that. Uh, I'm sure you've felt it before. Uh, People love to tell you what you should do. And sometimes we we like to give advice. We often like to give advice to others. And often, not always, but often we do it to make sometimes ourselves to feel better. Like we, we, we know better than this person. We want to show we know better than this person. We want to elevate ourselves. And so we, uh, we offer some wisdom and advice straight away and then sort of leave that and walk away rather than doing the hard work and walking beside someone and patiently um, getting along with them. And so the point of the advice often that we can give sometimes is to show how wise we are uh, rather than seeking to really love that person. That's knowledge that puffs up rather than seeking love that builds up. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't seek advice or seek wisdom from people. I think often it comes down to the motivation of the one giving the counsel. Is it from a, pla- a place of pride or a place of love? I think love takes longer and it's harder um, to walk alongside someone and unpack it with them. It's easier in, in pride to drop a truth bomb and then run. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And this is what Paul is pushing here in the church to be a church that builds up in love, that doesn't give wisdom or advice out of, out of pride. You know, the bigger issue here is not food and temples and sacrifice, even though Paul addressed it. The issue here is how this church loves one another, seeks to build one another up and walk alongside each other in humility and love. In another letter, uh, Philippians, Paul talks in Philippians 2, which will be on the screen uh, about Jesus being the one that we should look, like, look to for this act of humility and what he was like in serving. 
Philippians 2, which is the famous passage, talks about Jesus, who is in very nature God. Jesus being God in the flesh. It says, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or rested upon, but rather set aside his place of glory and power and authority. And he emptied himself and he took on limited human flesh. The, the creator of the universe became a human being and limited himself. He became a baby. And he relied on, on, on uh, his creation to look after him, to change his nappy to feed him. God in the flesh has to depend on humans to care for him. And he humbles himself and takes on this role of a servant, coming to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to earth on a mission. Came to earth on a mission to seek and to save the lost and die on a cross. Philippians 2.9 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus willingly allows himself be taken and killed by the very ones he created and came to save. He's rejected by his own people and killed on a cross. And he dies on a cross, God the Son, to save us, to take away our sin, to pay for our rebellion and make way back to our God, back to our Creator, which we're made for. And all out of love and all out of service and all out of humility. He dies the death we deserve. He pays the penalty we should have paid for. And Jesus doesn't play the I am right, you are wrong card in any way. He could if he wanted to, but he didn't. Instead, he says, I love you, and out of humility and servanthood, I will serve you, and I will lay down my life for you, and I will take on all your sin, all your shame, all your guilt, and you get my perfect life. Out of love, he does that. Jesus gave his life for ours. Paul says, do the same. Jesus says, follow me. And we are his followers and we are to be an expression of his love to one another in the church and to the world. That's our model. That's what we should be like. That's what Paul is calling his church to be in Corinth, and God's calling us to be like. But as I said, Paul still uh, deals with this issue of the theology of food and sacrifice and idols and wants to correct them. Have a look at sentences four to six on the screen behind me. It says this, Therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For, there are, for although they may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and, uh, and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Paul affirms what the church, some of this church already knows. An idol has no real existence. There's only one God. There's one God. And Paul is recalling to mind... Um, an Old Testament passage called Deuteronomy 6.4 in Jewish thinking or, or tradition. It's called the Shema. And the Shema was recited by the Jewish people every day, reminding themselves there is but one God, there is one Lord to whom all people owe their allegiance to. That's what he's talking about here. And Paul says, this is what Paul's saying, that there may be many gods, many lords people worship, but for us who have knowledge, there is one God who we should all worship. And Paul wants his church to, to pursue love and to care for one another, but he's also saying we also need to have truth as well at the same time. Uh, we need to love, we need to show grace and humility, but we also should not let go of truth. And Paul's put this idea of both grace and truth together, and he wants to show the church how this plays out. Look at sentences 7 and 8 with me. He says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. 
We are no worse off if we do not eat, or no better off if we do. Paul's saying here, there's one God in idols, and, and so you can eat whatever you want. There are no gods in that food. You can eat whatever you want. But there are some in the church who are still trying to work out what this looks like in day-to-day life. And some of the, as I said, some of the members of this church, the younger ones, uh, were, would have followed these uh, other gods and other idols and would have been used to eating this food and worshipping these, these uh, other gods and feel like that they'd be united to that god if they, if they ate. And they're still trying to work out what to do with that because that's the old way of life. They're saying we've been saved out of that. So even to go back there, um, uh, that, that may cause me to stumble. And Paul says their conscience is weak, as he puts it. Uh, they're struggling to work out how the gospel affects every part of their behavior now. So for them, in this state, going and eating food that's sacrificed to idols would defile, as Paul said, their already weak conscience. Eating this food would make them, make them, make them feel unclean. They may then doubt their faith. They may then doubt, have I, have I wronged God too far? They may, may doubt Jesus and where they stand with him. Paul wants, Paul wants this, these mature Christians to know, these younger Christians in the church, they're a work in progress. They're a work in progress. So help them, love them, build them up. They haven't arrived yet, as we all haven't. They're a work in progress. I can remember back when I was um, a youth pastor, back at, uh, back at uh, my old church, there was a young guy who I caught up with, who's a great guy, still a great friend of mine. And he was still trying to work out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, it was one of the first times I caught up with him, and, uh, and, uh, and we were chatting, and he was, a, he was passionate for Jesus, and uh, he said to me, Gav, I'm really struggling, and I'm a bit angry with God. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, maybe, maybe something's going on in home life, or, or school, or whatever it is. I said, oh, you know, hey, mate, what, what, what's going on? And he said to me, um, and he said to me oh, I'm really suffering. God is not providing any girls for me to make out with. I said, girls make out. I, I, he really said that. You can laugh. That's fine. It's weird. It was weird, right? It was, it was odd. And so first I thought I heard wrong. I'm like, you know, have I, have I my ears blocked? Did I, did I he, just hear him say that God is not providing girls to make out with? And uh, so I asked him again, and he, uh, and he was dead serious. And then I almost laughed in his face. And then, um, and then tried to work through what to even say, how to even start this conversation. But what I love, looking back on this guy, uh, who still loves Jesus, a passionate follower of Jesus, is that he's a work in progress. He was a work in progress. Um, he still hadn't worked out all the ins and outs of what it means to follow Jesus and bring his whole life under the Lordship of Christ. He was way off track, but he was a work in progress. And he still loved Jesus. I could have then, as an older, mature Christian, just smacked him, come down hard and said, this is what the Bible says, you've been really stupid, are you really safe? But I didn't. I wanted to build him up. I wanted to work with him. He needed some correction, but the aim was to build him up, show him love, and not show how much mature I was than him. And we're all a work in progress. And the aim should always be, as we interact with one another, is grace and humility and love and truth. Building one another up. You know, there's going to be some grey areas in Christian life. What we should do, what's helpful for us, what's not helpful for us. From, you know, shows we watch, movies we see, music we listen to, a bunch of grey areas. But, the, but the, what Paul is saying here is the ultimate aim is building one another up, is love. And these followers of Jesus in the church who weren't sure about eating food and that are sacrificed to idols are a work in progress. And they had to be encouraged and built up. And Paul's challenging the older ones and mature ones, saying, are you doing that? 
And then in sentences 9 to 13, he goes forward and he, and he really challenges them. Have a look at this. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother from whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when he's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will, I will not eat meat, lest I, make my, my, make, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is saying he's addressing these um, knowledgeable ones in the church, saying, you're right, idols are, are nothing. But that's not the point. The point is you're using your knowledge, using your freedom, your freedom in Christ, um, to, to affect and to, and to hurt ones that are younger than you. And you're not thinking about how it affects them. They didn't feel right in their conscience to, to eat this food, yet you are unlovingly by your actions pushing them to go against what they think. Sentence 11, Paul says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person, this person the church is supposed to love, is destroyed. The brother whom Christ died. This, this is the key line. I think it's the key line how we should view one another. For whom Christ died. He's saying here that Jesus loves this person so much. So much that he gave his life for them. Do you love them the same way? Do you value them as much as Christ does? You know, this person, Jesus died for them, and then you come along, and because you want to show off how mature you are, you lead them to sin. And if that's not enough, he says, he says in sentence 12, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Jesus. He's saying such unloving use of knowledge against a fellow Christian amounts to sin against Christ himself. Jesus identifies so much with the church. He's saying, when you sin against someone in the church, you sin against me. Paul's saying, see how it matters how we treat each other. And Paul says at the very end, in sentence 13, if food makes my brother stumble, ah, never eat meat, ever. Paul has his freedom. He knows that idols are nothing. He can eat this food if he wants to, but for the sake of building up of others, of serving, of loving others, he says, look, man, I'll go vego. I, I won't eat it all. I'll even go vegan if you want me to. It's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. You can go vegan, right? I see you can. Um, <laughs> Paul, Paul loves his brothers and sisters that much, just like Jesus does, that if any way his actions will affect others, he said, like, I won't do that. It's not about me. It's about them and growing and encouraging and being a community who love one another. He loves the church more than he loves his freedom to eat meat. You know, as I mentioned last week, David Bennett stood up here and he challenged us not to be lukewarm but to go all in. I think part of following Jesus and going all in our lives means loving like, like Jesus does and loving what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his church. He loves the church. He, he died for, to make it his. He calls it his bride. He calls his followers to love it just like he does. Putting aside pride and freedoms and desires and needs and wants and rights so that you would love and serve and build up others in the church. A community of followers where anyone can come in. Anyone can come in, no matter who they are, and see a bunch of different diverse people radically loving each other, putting their needs to one side, seeking the good of the other. And Jesus says, as you do this, they will see me. They'll see me. Strangers welcomed in and loved and invited into our, into our lives. Be part of this community based on God's love. And as we do that, they will physically 
feel and experience the love of God that is in Jesus. You know, I believe that we all want to be part of a loving community and, and make it a loving community, but it just won't happen miraculously or unintentionally. We need to make it our own reality. We need to be deliberate, and it starts with each of us. We can't just think, oh, someone else will do that. It starts with each of our desires and our hearts to love and to seek the good of others. And I think a big thing that stops us from loving others is often this feeling of of being entitled. We live in a time where a lot of our culture feels entitled. Like we are owed something. We deserve better than what we have. And what we have is never enough because we deserve more. And I deserve more, and I deserve better than this. And this is often an attitude that, that is the mark of our culture at the moment. And what it does is it places me right at the very center of the universe. It's all about me, and, the, and it's a blockage to loving others and seeking the good of others at the, at the cost of yourself. Because all you think about is you. And I think pride and entitlement go hand in hand. And there is no joy in entitlement because what you have will never be enough. You just keep thinking about what you don't have, but what you should have, what you are owed, what you deserve. And again, it places you at the very center. And it's a blockage to loving others. But there is joy in love. There is joy in humility. humility. There is joy in self-forgetfulness. I want to say, I want to argue that there is is nothing more freeing than self-forgetfulness. Than looking up and out and serving others and seeking the good of others. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus went and he served and he was humble and he gave his life out of love. In God's kingdom, in God's economy, we are made, humans are made, we find purpose and joy in not seeking our own good, not being entitled, but rather, like Christ, pursuing humility and seeking to serve and love others. That's how God's, uh, God's kingdom and economy works. And pride and entitlement are the opposite to love. But out of all this, the question has to be, we're called to be a loving community, to love one another sacrificially, deeply, putting the needs before our own. How do we do that? How do we be people who aren't lukewarm? I just want to show you one last piece of scripture and I'll finish with this. It's John 13, 34 and 35. This is Jesus speaking. You probably know this. It says this, Love one another just as I have loved you. You also to love one another. But by, all the, by this, and by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. How do you love others? How do you, how do you sacrificially, humbly serve the good of others day in, day out, regularly and not get over it, not get bitter or not get annoyed at it? I think it says it right there. Love as I have loved you. As you understand, experience, know God's love for you in Jesus, and the full weight of his love, his unconditional love for you, knowing the freedom from, from sin that we have, the freedom from death that we have, the freedom from Satan, from hell that we have, and being so secure in that love and that freedom that we can go and kind of help but love others. The love that we see from God is so big, is so lavish, is so full on. We will not help, we can't help but go and love others out of that thing. What is such a small thing I can do in response to what God has done for me? I think we, I think we forget, I forget just how much I'm loved by God. 
We forget that by nature, the Bible says we were object of his wrath. We were facing hell forever with no way back. We were enemies of God. The God who spoke creation to being. We were enemies with him. We don't like to figure out that, but this makes the cross way more glorious. That's the truth. We were, we were enemies with God. It's like we picked a fight with the biggest, most powerful be- being in the universe, and we're on the edge of being absolutely annihilated and punished. And facing his anger forever, and with no way back. But God, the Bible says, who is rich in mercy, full of love, he pursued us. I love the story of the prodigal, the prodigal, uh, prodigal son, where the father goes and seeks the son. God pursued us. He sought us. He sent his one and only son on a rescue mission while we were still far off, while we were still his enemies, to find us. And out of his amazing grace, he came and found you. He came and found you. He came and found me, and he saved us. And he said to me, you are my child whom I love. And, and I, I had done nothing. We had done nothing. We hadn't fixed ourselves up. We hadn't made amends. We hadn't said sorry yet. We hadn't sorted ourselves out. We were still a mess. We still had guilt and shame all around us. And Jesus, God says, I love you just as you are. And my son came to die for you and to cleanse you and to heal you and make you whole. And on the cross, Jesus paid for all my sin, all my failure, all my rebellion. And his perfect record of his life became mine and he got my sin and my failure and my mess. And on the cross, he secured a place for me forever in eternity with my God to go home where I belong. And he secured an internal relationship with my God forever. And my sin, my past, my present future sin has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I'm a child of the living God. In a real relationship with him day by day and nothing in all creation, not sickness, not death, not guilt, not suffering, not pain, not anything can separate me from his love. In all creation. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God rejoices over me. He rejoices over you. God's love for us is not merely a concept to be studied. It is a real, present reality to be enjoyed and rested in and be secure in day by day. God is my hiding place. He is my rock. He is my shelter, my refuge, my strength. He is my God who I can cling to. He says, I will never leave you, Gab, or forsake you. He is my heavenly dad who says, I'm bringing you home. And in eternity, he says, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no more crying, mourning, weeping, death or pain, for you are going to be with me forever. We have been set free from sin, from the fear of death, from hell, and we've been given, I've been given life to the full, the Bible says. And an identity that is a child of the living God. That is who I am. I am a child of the living God. And God has stamped that on me and said, that is yours forever. And I don't need to look around the world and look at finding my hope, my identity in relationships or work or whatever it is, or money or career. God says, this is who you are. You can go and pursue those things if you want to, but don't find your meaning and hope in them because you are mine. And this is our freedom as, our love, as loved children of the living God. This is who we are. And this is the love of God that we have that is ours. Knowing and resting and believing in this love, this freedom, allows us, motivates us to give our freedoms that we have here, here and now on the earth to love and to serve others. 
I want to be, we, we need to be a vessel, a distributor of God's love, wanting others to experience the love that we've received in Christ. And helping them to know that love more. I want to say, let's, let's, not, let's, let's not let God's radical love for us merely become a concept. Jesus didn't die for a concept or simply a truth to be studied and not engaged with or experienced. But let's dwell and understand this love and remind each other of this love by how we treat one another. Let's be a, let's be a church and be a people who show the world God and His lavish love because our world is longing to know this love. That's who we're called to be. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the love we've received in him. I want to invite the band up because we're going to sing about this love in a minute. It's worth rejoicing over. But I want to give you time as we do here in each week to reflect on that love, on what God has just said to you, maybe on loving others or that love that, that Christ has for you. Maybe you haven't received that love before. Maybe it's the first time you're sitting here going, wow, that, that's, is that real? I've got some questions about that. Whatever it is, I want to give you just maybe a minute or so to think through, to maybe pray, to, to get your mind around what God has just said to you. If you have questions, come and talk to me. Write in your slip if you have any questions. Then we're going to stand and going to sing together and respond to this amazing love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the love that you have shown us in Christ and this demonstrated at the cross and his blood poured out for our sin. We praise you that you have adopted us in not because of anything that we have done or because of any good in us but because of who you are and the love that you have shown. We just pray that you would uh, week by week and day by day show us by your spirit how great immense and powerful is your love that we might respond rightly in loving others we might pour our lives out to serve others as our king's life was poured out for our sake and our ransom father we pray that you'd empower us to do this that you might be glorified as you deserve amen